Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges, Judges 11. I'm going to begin in verse 29 and read down to the end of the chapter. Judges chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering." So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Aurora as far as Mineth, 20 cities, into Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for enlightenment. We pray that we will understand more of about who you are this evening. I pray, too, that we'll understand more about the depravity of man, our need for a Savior. Give us a wonderful sense of your holiness. I pray that this passage will push us towards loving Jesus Christ all the more. And it's in his name we pray. Well, this story, as one preacher has said, is one of the worst stories in all of Scripture. One of the worst. I've been recently uh, comforted. I discovered that Carl Truman preached through the book of Judges, and he said this, I have been preaching through Judges for the last few years, and frankly, the task would be much, much simpler if Hebrews 11 had never been written. That's true. 
it would be a simpler task if Hebrews 11 had never been written in one sense because this man, Jephthah, is listed in Hebrews 11. And perhaps you, like me, upon going to Hebrews 11, you, you, you find the name and you go, wait a minute, it, isn't that the guy who sacrificed his own daughter? And he's listed alongside David and Abraham and all these others? And Truman goes on, and this is what I hope you see this evening. He says, the writer of Hebrews commends these men, including Jephthah, because despite the fact that they were at best deeply flawed pieces of morally shattered humanity, they were blessed because it was not ultimately about them. Rather, it was about the kingdom and the Messiah to whom they looked. The writer of Hebrews is not rewriting history to suit his audience. He is pointing to the fact that reprehensible though these people were in Christ, they were conquerors. And he goes on and, and and ultimately, this, this story doesn't quite fit in with our modern movies or modern novels because this character, this real-life historical person, really, does not fit neatly into any categories that we may have for our literary figures. Yet this is the Word of God, and it is meant to speak to us, to preach to us. And so we really do need eyes of faith this evening to benefit from this, even this story, for it is God's word to us. May we benefit from it. First, a bit of background. Last time we were in Judges 10, and there we saw something new. In the book of Judges, we've seen a typical cycle. But last time we saw something new, something perhaps surprising. The Ammonites, an enemy of God's people, move in close to Israel's territory to wage war. So the Israelites cry out to God for help, but God, unlike he had done in previous times, he refuses to help his people. He says, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. That's new. God recognizes, and he wants the people to recognize, you're trying to manipulate me, aren't you? You're trying to use me. And I'm going to refuse you this time. Seek me with true repentance. Seek me with true faith. And so Israel, they do. They cry out again. They repent. They put away their idols. And then the text says that God's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And there the text ends, really, in that chapter. God is going to be merciful to his people again. And now we have chapter 11. Tonight I have four observations. There is a lot in this chapter and we won't cover every bit of it. So this is a highlight reel of sorts. But I do at least want you to observe these four particular matters. So the first observation I hope you see tonight is this. God's mercy towards a fickle people. God's mercy towards a fickle people. This is verses 1 to 11. At the end of chapter 10, just to get a rolling start here, the battle ensues between the, between the Ammonites and the Gileadites. 
And you may recall that the Gileadites, they are a branch of the tribe of Manasseh. It's a smaller tribe. So these are Israelites, the Gileadites are. The Ammonites are their enemy. And the very end of chapter 10 leads us to wonder, who will God raise up? For it seems that God is going to be merciful He's brought many judges forward thus far in the book, and now we naturally are going to ask, who's next? Verse 18 of chapter 10, who is the man who will fight for us? And now enter Jephthah, chapter 11. 11 verse 1, he comes onto the scene, but his entry into the public sphere is unlike what we've seen from other major judges. This guy is different. The text does not say that God raises Jephthah up, by the way. And that is noteworthy. That is very significant. God does later bless Jephthah. He will use him to lead Israel, but it is yet another indication of how far Israel has fallen away. You may remember that in Gideon's case, an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and spoke to him and got him to come and fight and lead God's armies. There's no such angel of the Lord coming to Jephthah. There is no indication that God chose him or appeared to him or or gave word to a prophet to give to Jephthah. Instead, it's the people who choose him as their leader. There's no indication even of prayer or of fasting in the choice of Jephthah. They chose, the people did, And in his mercy, God blesses the leader. God is in control, of course. He's superintending all things for his glory. In that sense, we can say that God raises him up. But this is an indication that the people are not healthy. They're not spiritually healthy. So verses 11, 1, I'm sorry, verses 1 to 3 tell us about Jephthah. These are the highlights. He's the son of Gilead prominent man. He has many brothers, but unlike his brothers, he is the son of a harlot. That is, he's the son of a prostitute. All of his other brothers are the sons of the wife of Gilead. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And his brothers basically kick him out of the family. They want to do this, perhaps so they can have a larger share of the inheritance. Perhaps they're jealous. One way or the other, they kick him out of the family And then we read, verse 3, that Jephthah becomes a bandit. He's a leader, a raider. And and think about the the sort of company that he keeps. He's a thug. He's he's working with other criminals. But notice also that the text says he's a mighty man of valor. That is, he's courageous. He's willing to stand up and do the hard work of war required of him. But Jephthah is ostracized, he's rejected, the son of a prostitute, and yet he is the man that God will use to deliver his people. This man who had no inheritance in his father's house now is the head of that house. And the stage is set, God will again use an unlikely man to lead his people. And if you haven't gotten this message thus far in Judges, here it is again. This is a repeated theme. And I think God is, uses these repeated themes that we may really 
understand just how badly he wants us to see. God uses weak instruments that he may get glory. But the people are fickle, and by that I mean they change their minds easily. They ostracize Jephthah. They have no backbone. They bring him back. They are fickle because they push him away. They bring him back when they really need him. And not only that, they make him their leader. So he's a zero to hero overnight. Only a fickle people would do that. And Jephthah actually calls them out on this. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are under distress? And though it is the people who call Jephthah, God will indeed later bless him. Because God is merciful even to a fickle people. Second observation this evening. Observe Jephthah's true faith. This is verse 12 to 28. Observe Jephthah's true faith. Firstly, he engages in talks with the king of the people of Ammon. He goes right at his task. He does not waver. In verses 12 and 13, he says, What do you have against me? What do you have against my people that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king answers, Because Israel took away our land when they came up out of Egypt. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. And what follows throughout this long section is that Jephthah gives the king of the Ammonites a history lesson. The Ammonites say that Israel has stolen their land, and Jephthah tells them that it was never their land to begin with. Jephthah is right. He recognizes the lies of the Ammonites. Verse 22, Daniel Block, the scholar, has pointed out that Ammon actually has no historical claim to this land. The land belonged to Arnon, to the Amorites. And when the battle was over, this territory passed directly into the hands of the Israelites. The Ammonites have no historical claim. So Jephthah calls them out on their lies. But Jephthah's true faith is also seen in that he recognizes the history of God's salvation towards Israel. He knows who God is. He, he remembers that God delivered his people from the land of Egypt and that he led them through the land of Canaan, conquering various peoples. He knows that God had promised them the land of Canaan. You see this in verse 16. But also read verse 24. Jephthah's true faith is seen in that he challenges the power of the gods of the Ammonites. He says, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? He's, he's saying, if your God is so powerful, why don't you have this land already? We've been here for 300 years. Why hasn't your God restored it to you? Jephthah also recognizes that God is in control of who gets the victory. Also in verse 24, he says, So whatever the Lord our God to, takes possession of before us, we will possess. And whatever your God gives to you, you will have. And he challenges the Ammonites. 
And then Jephthah was blessed by God. For verse 29, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him as he's in faith going to war to face God's enemies. God's spirit comes upon him to work through him to defend his people. So Jephthah's true faith is seen in that he goes to war and he takes on God's enemies. Also, verse 29, he passes through Gilead and Manasseh and he passes through Mizpah and he advances towards the people of Ammon. He's going in to do his responsibility. And all of this evidence suggests that Jephthah really is acting in faith. He was delivering God's people. He's advancing God's cause, despite the fact that he's the son of a prostitute, despite the fact that in his past he was the leader of bandits. He knows something of Scripture. He knows something of the goodness of God. But even more than this evidence laid out in this chapter, again, is Hebrews 11. It's by faith that the people of God conquered their enemies. And he's listed. What more shall I say, the writers of Hebrews says? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel. The pro- He's listed next to David and Samuel, who through faith subdued kingdoms. And that's what Jephthah does, isn't it? He subdued this other kingdom. He took possession of the promised land. If you look closely at how much land they actually took, it's a lot of land. This was a great victory for the people of God. So let us recognize Jephthah as one God used to deliver his people. He had genuine faith, despite what is about to happen, despite what he is about to do. So put a pen in Hebrews 11, and just remember, Hebrews 11 is there, despite what is about to happen. So third observation, verses 29 to 40, Jephthah's true Failure. Jephthah's true failure. So verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he says, If you will indeed deliver the people into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace, it shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering So God does give the people of Israel a decisive victory. But there is no mention anywhere in this text that God grants the victory because of the vow. Rather, God grants the victory despite the vow. Besides, never before had any Israelite leader made such a vow as this. Why did Jephthah think he need to do this? That's what I want you to wrestle with this evening. Why does he do this? Firstly, he's, he's fearful. The, the vow is made out of fear. He makes the vow, you'll notice, right before the battle. He's on his way to the battlefront. His faith becomes weak. He panics. He's driven by the fear of losing. And Jephthah thinks he can curry God's favor by putting some skin into the game, so to speak. He is no longer relying on God alone, is he? 
He's attempting to sway God with works. It's the same old story, isn't it? He's attempting to sway God with an offering. He wants safety. When I return safely home, then I will offer up a burnt offering to you. It's a rash vow. He hasn't thought this through. He vows that anything or anyone that comes out of his door, he will sacrifice. He does not know who or what may come out of his door. Words matter. No one should make a vow this rashly, this quickly. It should take some thought, some consideration, especially when you're doing so with God. But even more, this vow is unbiblical. I would say it's even wicked. There is good reason to think, I think sufficient reason, to think that Jephthah knew that a human would actually meet him. This whole time, he meant in his vow that he would sacrifice a human to curry God's favor. You may have to look closely at this. Perhaps I, I know that some readers think that Jephthah was just unlucky that it happened to be his daughter who came to him, that a human came to him. Some readers may think that Jephthah was expecting first to see some sort of animal to meet him upon his return. But as the scholar Jim Hamilton says, it is extremely unlikely that an animal would come out from his house. Notice it says house. He doesn't say barn or, or anything like that. It says house. Also, the word whatever could be whoever. It's not very specific. Jephthah could have made this more specific and used a word that referred exclusively to an animal. Instead, it's ambiguous. It could mean human, could mean animal. This is a point Jim Hamilton makes too. It's a wicked vow, and it appears that Jephthah was planning on sacrificing a human to get this favor. And he's treating God now like he's a Canaanite God. He thought he could manipulate God. And when Jephthah gets home, it's his daughter who comes out with dancing and celebration over the victory her father has led the people to, and she is the first to meet him, and the celebration stops. And Jephthah is distraught. He meant to sacrifice a human. He didn't intend necessarily to sacrifice his daughter, but he was willing, wasn't he? He was willing even to sacrifice his daughter. She interestingly decides to go along with it. Perhaps she saw no way out, but we read about no protest, no appeal, no attempts to run away. She only requests a few months, time to go away with her friends to bewail her virginity. And some take this point to suggest here that Jephthah did not kill her, but only devoted her to a life of celibacy. But that misses the mark. She does lament her virginity, but by that, she means that she will never marry, nor have children, nor have a full, meaningful life in the, in the Hebrew sense of that word. Matthew Henry says that if she were only devoted to a life of celibacy, 
she would have no reason to spend two months lamenting her virginity, for she would have the rest of her life to lament that. That too is a good point. That too leads me to believe that this indeed is human sacrifice. Jephthah's daughter is lamenting the fact that she's going to be sacrificed in fulfillment of her father's vow. Now another question. Why is Jephthah going to go through with this? Does he not know that Scripture plainly states that you should not make human sacrifice? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's written. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. That's Leviticus 18.21. Or in Deuteronomy 12, it says essentially the same thing. And there's other warnings You are the people of God. You are not to sacrifice people in order to curry favor like the Canaanites do. We're a different sort of people. We're a holy people. If Jephthah did not know the scriptures, surely he should have at least known from nature that murder is wrong. It's one of the Ten Commandments. He knows this by nature. Thou shalt not murder. There's no excuse for this man. He thought wrong thoughts about God. He thought God to be a cruel master. He thought God was not merciful. He wanted to prove himself to God. And people do this, don't they? Even in our day and age, we often read about or or see people, perhaps we ourselves want to prove ourselves to God. It's in our sinful nature to attempt to earn our keep, isn't it? Certain false religions, like Islam, they capitalize on this impulse. Satan knows this impulse, and he feeds into it. The pagan religions in Canaan certainly tried to curry favor with the gods of the land. And you'll, if you look back in, in chapter 10, I won't flip there, one of the gods mentioned Chemosh. Well, this is who the, the Israelites were, were, were essentially flirting with, they're interacting with. And the Israelites had gotten together with these other people groups, and they're learning from them. And God had warned the people of Israel time and again in the books of the law. You'll see, do not intermarry with the pagan peoples, lest you become like them. It seemed before that Jephthah trusted God to save, and then when the going got tough, he became anxious. He lacked trust that God truly would save. Is that you this evening? Do you have faith, but when it gets really tough, you try to put some skin into the game to earn your own keep? You add just a little bit of works righteousness. Pastor Ryan talked about that this morning. Try to keep ourselves in the covenant with good works. Or perhaps, perhaps we do good things just so that we can feel better about a relationship with God. That too is functionally is works righteousness. This goes deep. And you see it here. His true failure, Jephthah's true failure, is that he failed to understand God accurately. His true failure is that he did not understand God's mercy, God's word, God's love. And it led him 
to believe that he could actually curry favor with God in his day and age when they're influenced by Canaanites. Perhaps Jephthah even thought that this was the pious thing to do. Perhaps this would show my devotion to God. He does not know God as revealed in his word. He only knows something of God. This is truly one of the worst stories in the Bible. Let the shock of this story serve as a reminder of the severity of false worship. Let it serve as a reminder of the depravity of mankind. But also, let it remind you of the evil of Satan. This is exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to slip into works righteousness. This is Jephthah's fault, no doubt, but it is also the work of Satan himself. This is what Satan wants in the world, fear, destruction. He wants, to, he, wa- he wants to convince you, believer, God is not that merciful. Yeah, he's merciful, but he's not that merciful. Yeah, you might win the battle, but maybe you should do something to show God just how devoted you are. Is there any way that this impulse is in you Perhaps this week you can think and pray about your temptation towards works righteousness because that's the root of this. The writer of the book does not detail anything about the sacrifice. That's noteworthy. It's too gruesome. I was thinking actually of trying to walk through an imagined scenario of what it would be like, but I, the, the writer does not take us down that road. I don't think it's proper for me to take us down that road. But for two months, there were a bunch of people who thought about what was to come. And then the day comes. Fear and anxiety can become so real. Anxiety, it can become so palpable that some people will choose actually to sacrifice their children. Some people will choose to sacrifice, well, they'll choose rather to end their own lives. You've seen the statistics for suicide in our country. Some people are convinced because of anxiety or whatever reason that living is worse than death. And the reason for that is is they have not heard or they have not grasped the hope that you and I have in Jesus Christ. We are the ones who have come to an understanding of the truth. It's our job now to go forward, knowing that there are people out there living in fear and anxiety. We need to go and proclaim God's remedy. May we stand up for the unborn babies in our country. May we stand strongly, even as the pressures of the age sort of push us to the outside of society. May we stand strong. Another point a scholar made is that it is really a terrible sign that Jephthah actually got away with this sacrifice. For two months, his daughter bewailed her virginity. Surely the word spread. He's the leader in the land. And for two months, many Israelites could have taken Leviticus and put it in front of his face, taken Deuteronomy and said, don't forget this. 
But we don't have any reason to believe that any Israelite warned him. We don't know that for sure. But it appears, at least from the text, that no one pleaded with Jephthah, do not go through with this. This is murder. God has explicitly commanded this, but the people are silent. No one in Israel warns him, grabs him by the leg and pulls him to the ground. Says, don't you do it. Let that too be a sign to us about the depravity that's pervasive throughout the land of Israel. The fourth observation before getting on to some application this evening is actually the same as the first heading. So observe again God's mercy to a fickle people. This is chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. I'll cover this briefly, but let this point serve as bookends for us. God's mercy to a fickle people. In chapter 12, we read that Jephthah leads his people. God did not immediately strike him down. He's leading the people, and the Ephraimites, they are the descendants of Joseph, by the way. They're one of the more prominent tribes. They come into the picture in chapter 12, and they too are fickle because they are jealous. They are covetous of the Gileadites. They want to be prominent. They want to get glory for themselves. A small tribe notched a victory over the enemy, and they covet the spotlight. So they come to Jephthah, angry they missed out on a chance for war, and thereby a chance for glory. You'll see this verse 1. Why did you go and cross over the Jordan to fight the people of Ammon? Why didn't you call us to go with you? This same thing happened in Judges chapter 8. You may recall in the Gideon narrative, the same thing happened. The Ephraimites come up and they're angry with Gideon. And they say the same thing to Gideon. Why have you done this, Gideon, by not calling us? When you went to fight the Midianites and they reprimanded him, the Ephraimites, they're a prominent tribe and they, they want to get the glory for themselves. And Gideon is diplomatic. And he says, oh, now, now, what have I done in comparison with your great tribe? And Gideon's smooth. He's, he's diplomatic. But in chapter 12, Jephthah is not diplomatic. They are not handled in such a way. This is a point Dale Ralph Davis makes. This time, there's civil war. Jephthah and his men wage war, and this is yet another picture of the downward spiral of the nation of Israel. God's chosen nation fighting now among themselves. The degeneracy is complete. It's full. And I think the writer of Judges gives us these parallel stories, by the way, Judges 8, Judges 12, so that we can see this point. We're just seeing how far down they're going to fall. Chapter 8, there was covetousness, yes, but there was no civil war. Chapter 12, there's covetousness and there's war, and not a small war. 42,000 are killed. And at one point, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 only, but at one point, the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, 
the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan, and there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. It's not a small war, it's major civil war. But God is merciful even to this fickle people. Notice the very end of the chapter. He raises up more judges. Jephthah dies. Verse 7, we see that he judged Israel six years. And he dies, he's buried in Gilead. And then, for some time, we have three more minor judges listed. You'll see them there at the end of the chapter. Despite their sin, God continues to raise up deliverers time and again, even after they've sunk so low that they're sacrificing their own people and fighting among themselves. One of the worst stories in Scripture. Some application then for us. One, um, be careful of overlooking the good within flawed Christian figures. Beware of overlooking the good within other Christians. God rewards true faith, and even Jephthah had true faith. We should not be overzealous in our criticism of other Christians. We do indeed need to criticize opponents of the gospel. We need to call out heretics. We need to guard God's word. At the same time, when we read a story like this and then we read Hebrews, we need, to, we need to temper ourselves sometimes, don't we? We need to recognize faith, even in people that we have strong disagreements with. So let this fact temper our attitudes towards them. Second application, know your entire Bible. Become a well-rounded theologian. The education of our children should be thoughtful. It should be well-rounded. Jephthah was a man of war, indeed. He knew all about war. He understood the tactics. And he understood much of the history of God's people. And read through the speech he gave. It's a really good and, and, in a way, diplomatic speech to the enemies of God's people. He possessed some theological knowledge and acumen. But he did not know his Bible thoroughly, did he? Had he known his Bible well, he would have read and understood Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Ten Commandments. How many Christians only know just a sliver of the Bible? Perhaps you have certain favorite parts that you gravitate towards. It's difficult to, to march through certain books of the Bible, even this one. But this is good for us, isn't it? Perhaps some of you, like myself, that you walked much of your Christian journey with just a half understanding of certain Christian themes. Perhaps, perhaps you have only a half understanding of God's mercy or God's grace. Jephthah did. He had only a partial understanding. So get to know your Bibles well. That's another application. 
And thirdly, briefly the next two, beware the depravity of man. Do not be naive. Not one of us is immune from committing egregious sins. One of the great lessons of the book of Judges is that it shows us the depth and totality of our depravity. And when you get to the end of the book, you're almost at a point where you're like, okay, okay, enough. You think about it. If God had included all the stories that he could have included, Judges would not have been 20 chapters or so. It would have been 50, 60, 70 or more chapters. And God's mercy, he limits the knowledge of our depravity. We are worse than we know in our nature. You are more capable of egregious sins than you may realize. But at the same time, if you are in Christ, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Though we may be depraved, God is good to us. And one of the great lessons when we see stories like this, they serve as a warning and we recognize, God, help me. Let me not be like Jephthah. Let me not be like this other man. But this other man did awful things. Hold me fast. And then fourthly, look beyond the failures of Jephthah. Look beyond Jephthah. Some may stop right here. I think often this is what happens in this chapter. There's a car wreck on the side of the interstate, and we're driving by, and we want to look over, and we just want to stare for a while. That's what this is. And once you read this Jephthah narrative, you just want to dwell there and just look and say, wow, can you believe that guy? And we just stare at him. Murdered his own kid? And you just want to think about that. How could he do that? I would never do that. People today would never do that. We've evolved, haven't we? But that's not the point of this narrative. You have to get the big picture here. What is this pushing us towards? Dale Ralph Davis says this, it's even as if the winners in the book of Judges can't have a clean win. Jephthah cannot have a clean win. We have salvation here, but a marred salvation. And Davis says this, the writer is suggesting that if we seek a perfect salvation, we will have to look to one who is greater than Jephthah. And that's the point of this. And that's what Truman talked about when I opened the sermon. That is what Truman is speaking about. This is, you have to look beyond Jephthah to really get the point of this. This is so convoluted. This is complicated. A, a, a faithful man committed such sins. How do we put this in our modern categories? Sometimes we just have to put it on the table, back up a little bit, pray, and say, Lord, help us. I think that's one of the lessons here. Look beyond Jephthah. And we can identify with him in some way, can't we? The, the, the night before going to battle, if you're in war and you're getting ready to go to battle, for any soldier, for any man, that must be one of the most horrific nights of your life. Could you sleep if you knew that the next morning you were going to be at battle. Think of the soldiers at D-Day. Are they sleeping the night before? No, they're full of anxiety. They're full of thoughts about what happens if I die. They're full of thoughts about all sorts of things. And the anxiety itself would, would, would press them. 
Think about Christ. The night before battle was surely the most intense experience of his life. Remember in Gethsemane, he's anxious, he's distraught, and he tells his disciples, stay awake with me. Pray for me. Christ doesn't sleep. He's praying all night. And he goes and he pleads with God because he knows what's to come the next day. Jephthah, in that moment, decided, you know what? Let me sacrifice someone else. Jephthah, in that moment, when people truly needed him, was selfish. And he decided, you know what? Even if it's my child that walks through the front door, let me sacrifice someone else. Jesus Christ is not like that. When his people truly needed him, Jesus Christ did not offer up someone else to curry favor with God. Jesus Christ laid his self down. The night in Gethsemane proved to be the most intense night of his earthly life. He stayed awake. He cried out to God in prayer, and God did not remove the cup. But Jesus drank the cup that God had reserved for him, and it cost him his life. And on the cross, he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he stayed on the cross. He paid the penalty that sinners deserve. There is no one like him. May we trust in him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for even this chapter. May it work in us an appreciation for Jesus Christ. May we marvel at his excellencies. And may we take the warning that this chapter, these few chapters, serve as. May we cling all the more to your mercy, for you indeed are a rock. May we hide behind you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.